Does the recent coup in Niger affect U.S. security interests? Or is it just one more coup on a coup-plagued continent? That's the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to Episode 74 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College, the Naval War College, and currently contract faculty for the Army War College. My intent for these podcasts is to be a kind of war college for everyone, not as in-depth as our national defense universities, but instead focused on what I believe to be the enduring lessons of war, concepts that I think every citizen should understand about war, peace, and what comes in between. The world's an unstable place. Wars, rumors of wars, internal disturbances, and the occasional international or non-international armed conflict are daily news occurrences. The coup in Niger and its aftermath is, sadly, one more example. The coup does seem to be gaining a fair amount of media attention with the usual demands that the United States must do something. But do we have to do something? If so, then what? In this episode, I'll talk a little bit about what I think is relevant to understand about Niger and then analyze what's going on there in light of information previously presented in the ancient art of modern warfare. It's hard to describe Niger and other former French colonies in Africa in the limited time that I give myself for these episodes, but here are the basics. Niger is a former French colony. In 1960, with 15 other French colonies in Africa, Niger was granted what is sometimes called flag independence. Now, flag independence means that the former colony has its own flag and its own government, but it remains tied to France in so many ways that it isn't really fully sovereign or independent of France. Perhaps most important of these ways is economic dependence. All of these countries use what's called the CFA franc, formerly known as the colonial franc, now the African franc. As a point of reference, the French currency before the euro was the franc. According to the Government of France's website, the African countries of Benin, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Niger, Senegal, Togo, Cameroon, the Central African Republic, Chad, the Congo, Equatorial Guinea, and Gabon all use the CFA franc. The Comoros uses its own version of the franc, called the Comoros franc, but it's considered part of the CFA community. The CFA franc is printed in France. The exchange rate of the three varieties of the CFA franc are set by Paris. The exchange of the CFA franc to any other currency must first be exchanged into euros, and 50% of each participating country's reserves are held in France. There are also additional cooperative agreements between these countries and France. These agreements are generally secret and sometimes revised, but generally they include provisions allowing French military forces to be stationed in the country, the placement of French officers in the military chain of command, the right of France to militarily intervene for security and stability, the requirement to buy French military equipment, and preferential concessions for French companies in any imports or exports. Theoretically, each country is free to leave this arrangement whenever it wishes. In reality, the economic and military ties make this almost impossible. Now, as you might imagine, these golden threads bind these countries to France quite securely. A military coup might seem to offer the best possibility to break these ties. 
it would offer the potential for a complete break, independent of the financial and diplomatic strings which seem to bind civilian leaders. French Africa has seen a string of such coups or coup attempts just in the past three years. These include Mali, Guinea, Chad, Burkina Faso, and now Niger. In fact, since 1974, Niger has had seven coup or coup attempts. An interesting feature of these is a common excuse for these recent coups. Of course, there's the usual and usually accurate charges of corruption. More interesting is the common charge that this corruption interfered with counterinsurgency campaigns against Islamic militants, leading to military setbacks in each of these countries. Now, these setbacks correlate to a decision by France to significantly scale back its military involvement in its former colonies. This has left the leaders of these countries even less happy with France than they might have been before. Consequently, in some of the successful coups, including in Niger, there has been an effort to break military ties with France, but not the economic ties. If you add the former British colony of Sudan to this list, which has also had a military coup, this makes a band of countries across the continent from the Atlantic to the Red Sea all along the region known as the Sahel, which borders the southern limit of the Sahara Desert. In each of these countries, Russia has stood ready to step in and provide military assistance to the coup leaders. I mentioned in earlier podcasts that the presence of Russia and its quasi-mercenary organization, the Wagner Group, seemed to be concentrated on pariah states, that is, states that already placed themselves out of the rules-based order. Ultimately, the failure of the French security assistance, coupled with long-standing resentment against France and its colonial past and post-colonial hegemony, made conditions ripe for military coups. When rules-based countries and organizations such as the United States, the European Union, and the Economic Organization of West African States, or ECOWAS, condemned these coups and sanctioned their leaders, Russia eagerly supported the coups and offered security assistance. The same has been true in Niger. ECOWAS gave the military coup leaders in Niger an ultimatum to return the civilian leaders to power. When that passed, ECOWAS mobilized its military intervention force in order, according to the president of the ECOWAS Commission, to restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger. Russia, in turn, issued statements supporting the coup and warned ECOWAS against military intervention. Mali and Burkina Faso, already under the control of military coups, said that any intervention would be treated as a declaration of war. The coup leaders, in turn, announced that they were going to ask Wagner to assist them. What happens next? The world is waiting. But what does that mean to us, or anyone outside of West Africa? Well, for one, at last count, there's about 1,100 U.S. military personnel in Niger conducting training of Niger's military forces and conducting intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance from an unmanned aerial systems base in central Niger. Germany and Italy also have troops in that country. So far, Niger's coup leaders have not asked American troops to leave or cease activity, although in keeping with U.S. policy on military coups, we have, for the time being, ceased security cooperation activity with the Nigerian armed forces. 
regarding what the American policy should be about Niger, I leave that to you. But what can we learn from this? I'm going to use the current situation as an illustration of ideas put forth in previous episodes. First, let's go to the coup itself. Does it meet the criteria for a successful coup described in episode 64? So far, yes. From what we have seen, there was a crisis of confidence in the government as the result of its failure and counterinsurgency and a general perception of corruption. There was also no realistic expectation that the civilian government would change to meet its challenges. The senior military leadership, trained by France and the United States, was apparently competent enough to pull this off. The presidential guard, intended to protect the civilian center of gravity, became the initiator of the coup, much like many palace guards in history. It was accomplished quickly and declared successful even before it actually had full control. This is another point of historic success in coups. The president and his cabinet are under arrest, which is essential for success, and the coup seems to have the general support of the population, at least for now. So far, so good, at least for the military coup. There are, however, two more criteria in episode 64 that are still unknown and one outlier. First, will the civil service bureaucracy continue to function? The Niger military, although competent, is unlikely to have the competency to run the government without that civil service support. Second, do the coup leaders have a strategy, a plan, for fixing the problems that sparked off the coup? That too remains to be seen. The outlier is the response of outside parties. Despite the demand for French forces to leave, France has said it will not respond to the demand of the military usurpers. But will those French forces or the small U.S. military installation in that country do anything to oppose the coup? ECOWAS, as I said before, is prepared to intervene to restore the prior government, while Russia could use force or its paramilitary forces to keep the coup leaders in power. I mentioned Wagner twice already. What is its likely role? Can it deploy in time and with sufficient credibility to keep the coup leaders in power? Can it do so in a way to keep Russian regular military forces from intervening? Can it do it in a way that Russia can argue that it is not conducting a military intervention in Niger? Or have events in Ukraine completely shattered Russian deniability that Wagner is a Russian military force? Will Russia even care about maintaining that deniability? On the other hand, given the repercussions of the Wagner mutiny, is Wagner capable of deploying at all? Or will its functions be performed by another entity? Way back in episode 6, I said that even if we could eliminate Wagner, the demand for its capabilities would remain. Wagner would just be replaced by other and perhaps less desirable providers, if you can imagine a less desirable provider than Wagner. As described in Episodes 4 and 6, the advantages Russian quasi-mercenary organizations provide to Russian hybrid warfare are too great for Russia to abandon using them, no matter what name they might fight under. And this leads to the Russian use of hybrid warfare in its expansion in Africa. The growing influence of Russia in Africa cannot be attributed to chance and luck. 
Back in episode three, Colonel Waring and I discussed how Russia is using a hybrid war strategy in Africa to expand its presence and influence. Niger is the latest example of how this is playing out. A series of coups generated in response to military and political failures across a belt of Africa from the Atlantic to the Red Sea. These coups cause Western governments and regional organizations in Africa to cut off aid and assistance. Russia is immediately ready to step into the vacuum, offering financial and military aid. It does so by offering loans based on access to natural resources. For Niger, this will certainly include access to or control of uranium. At the same time, leaders of those coups are careful not to cut the gold and threads that bind the country economically to France and 14 other African countries. Cutting those strings would cause economic chaos throughout the region and in France, which might then decide military action would be appropriate after all. Russia is often heavy-handed in its approaches. I think this demonstrates it can also be quite clever. But what does that mean for us? Should we be concerned? Do we need to take action? If so, then what action should we take? This is a regional concern within Africa and for France. French military withdrawal from this area led to the military instability that facilitated these coups. If France doesn't seem to want to invest its elements of national power to maintain stability in the region, why should we? If ECOWAS is threatened, what could we or should we do to assist? Do we oppose this just because it's part of the great power competition game? To me, this seems like the early 21st century version of the race to Africa of the 1880s. Only this time, the major players are the powers that complained that they were left out of the pie slicing a century and a half ago. The United States stayed out of it then, only exerting pressure to keep hands off of Liberia. The difference seems to be that the African states are now welcoming mercantile neo-colonization by Russia and China they may all wind up being very sorry. Anyway, my purpose in this podcast is to present how the ideas described in previous podcasts are playing out in the real world. I try to avoid saying what I think you should do, how you should respond to your government representatives. I served in a UN peacekeeping operation in West Africa. I have my own opinions about the area. And yet, even if someone were to ask, I don't know what I would recommend. This is your decision. One thing I do recommend is for you to join me on the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.